Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. So welcome, Matt, to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. Good to see you today. Hey, it's great to see you, Doug. Gosh, I have been so looking forward to talking with you. I mean, you know, you and I have been friends for, oh, I don't know, what, 15 years plus or something? I believe so, yeah. Ever since your brother introduced us due to our common interest in finding gold. Yeah, the uh, the many years of getting mental health counseling and finding gold nuggets <laughs> have finally paid off. So thank you for all of the uh, the work you put into both finding gold and helping me find my inner gold. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Doug. It's wonderful to be here with you today. Yeah. So Matt is a dear friend of mine. He's a Stanford-educated uh, psychiatrist, and he works primarily in the world of cognitive behavioral therapy. But Matt, why don't you tell us With that introduction, tell us a little bit more about yourself and kind of how you got involved specifically in CBT and kind of just let us get to know who you are. Oh, thanks, Doug. Yeah, I uh, was introduced to CBT by my mentor, Dr. David Burns, and this was in the middle of medical school. And I had a few experiences training with him that were so life-changing in a positive direction that I, I firmly decided this is what I wanted to do with my life. And so here I am many years later hanging out with you. And it's just great to be be in your presence, my friend. Oh, it's uh, the feeling is mutual. I mean, you seem like such a natural, like, you know, we have been on many adventures together. And I've seen, you know, your work just in the field, just helping people of all, you know, under many different circumstances, you know, camping, I can only imagine what it must be like in a real therapeutic practice, because I've seen just how generous and giving you are into in the world. Oh, that's really, really great to hear, Doug. I, I, I so appreciate that sentiment. And yeah, I see you. I see you doing the same. And yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of this, this podcast. And I think you've mentioned that you're the majority of your listeners are interested in entre- entrepreneurship and and, and business, and there might have been a question about how how CBT uh, yeah. could help folks in that situation. Absolutely. Well, why don't we? Why don't you give a, just a little bit of a background on what CBT is and kind of its fundamental principle? Because I think that's important as a, a place to kind of create a reference point. Yeah, yeah. So CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. It was developed by Dr. Aaron Beck in I believe the nineteen sixties and seventies. And it was a bit of the Reese's effect. It was really merging two large, already very powerful schools of therapy in, in, into one treatment uh, modality. The first is the cognitive part. Uh, cognition is just a fancy word for a thought. And the cognitive model suggests that uh, our feeling states are dictated by uh, our thoughts, that we feel the way that we think. And that when we're having negative feelings, uh, that Aside from sadness, uh, there's some kind of distortion in our thinking that the thoughts aren't actually true, or and they, they couldn't be true, but they're still quite powerful and can be quite disturbing. For example, a thought like "I'm I'm worthless," and many of my patients with depression firmly believe that thought. It circulates in their mind. It upsets them. It makes them feel worthless and defective and hopeless. And the cognitive model suggests that there's some distortion that's there's just not there's something that's not quite true about that thought, and, and that you could think a more true thought and feel better at yeah. the same time. So that's the cognitive model, which is really powerful. I mean, you know, to sum that up, basically, what you think dictates what you feel, which is a pretty 
big understanding if you really take a moment and think about it. I think so often before I was, you know, uh, exposed to this work, you know, feelings and thoughts and emotions, they were all sort of sporadically happening. And just to make that connection that if I can change the way I think, it will affect how I feel is a powerful recognition in and of itself. Right, right. So the, the cognitive model was super powerful. And when people would were capable of changing their thoughts from something like, I'm worthless to I'm imperfect, just a slightly more true statement, uh, they oftentimes would feel better and they, they could take it further. They could come up with all kinds of new, truer thoughts that would improve their mood. And so that was really exciting clinically to see patients with pretty profound depression uh, regaining their self-esteem. And then the behavioral model uh, was also very powerful in and of itself. The behavioral model suggests that we're uncomfortable doing things that we do infrequently, that uh, we can be quite actually afraid to do new things that are outside of our repertoire. But things that we do commonly, uh, we're, we desensitize to, we get used to. And that it's avoidance. When we avoid something in our environment due to fear, and we think that doing so protected us, we get some relief that then trains our brain to be afraid of that thing. And so behaviorally, it, we could now treat phobias or other things that people commonly get, get afraid of just by en encouraging them to face those fears and, until they're calm and, and feeling okay again. Which, you know, a phobia is probably that one of the larger manifestations of that, but I can imagine, and you know, we'll get to talking about entrepreneurship in a minute, but, you know, once you've gotten to a certain level of success in your business, like the fear of, you know, losing that in a lot of ways maybe prevents people from taking it to the next level. So you kind of get into that comfortable space and then that fear kind of prevents you from going forward. So it's, it's fascinating, like phobia being an extreme version of that, but also that same behavioral model is being played out on us kind of in everyday situations. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I can see how that could be a problem for entrepreneurs because the idea would be to do something new. And yet that would be an inherently frightening thing to be doing if it's new. And oftentimes, so, so in the cognitive model, we also come, come to realize that these thoughts that we're carrying around are distorted. And one way they can be distorted is through something called emotional reasoning. That if I feel afraid of doing this, that means it's dangerous. Interesting. So talk to me about, let's dive into the distortions a little bit. And you know, there are there there's ten from reading the Feeling Great book from Dr. David Burns, which was a great recommendation. I loved his first book, and the second book is as you know advances it even further. But the talk to us a little bit about the ten distortions of the mind and how those affect people in everyday life. Sure, yeah, and and by the way, these thoughts people often say, well, I'm not actually having any thoughts when I feel upset, and that's sort of the normal experience. Our thoughts are kind of in the background, eluding us to some extent. These are automatic negative thoughts. And for them to be only partially conscious or for us to have to expend some effort to understand what we're actually telling ourselves is normal. Sometimes I think of it as like the machinery in our computer is doing a lot of stuff that then presents the image on the screen that, that we're looking at. And we're aware of the image on the screen, like our feeling states, but we don't know exactly what's going on in the circuitry until we take a close look. Yeah, which is, you know, you, you taught me a lot about this many years ago, but this is one of the reasons why I got into meditation is to develop that self-awareness to recognize the thoughts that are going on. And, I, you know, I, by no means am I perfect in this, but I feel like I have a pretty good 
recognition, especially when I'm having negative thoughts. Obviously, the emotions are triggers of that, but just to be able to recognize, oh, huh, there's that thought pattern that keeps showing up for me. Huh, interesting. You know, I, you know, through cultivating meditation, I've been able to to strengthen that awareness. Yeah, and I think there are many meditative aspects of the team model, which was developed by Dr. David Burns, uh, starting with just the testing component, where the idea is to focus in on what am I feeling in this moment, to get in touch with our feeling state as a starting point. And then if you can identify your, your feelings, then you can ask yourself, well, why would I be feeling that way? And, and you can get a little deeper into what, what the thought might be. For example, I have a recurring set of thoughts around uh, that relate to shyness. And so right now I feel a little nervous. I, I feel, you know, I have some thoughts circulating in the back of my mind like, oh, people listening to Doug's podcast will think I'm boring and droning on and on and, and I'll, I'll let Doug down or yeah. something like that. And that's mind reading and that's fortune telling, which are two of the most common uh, distortions for folks who suffer from anxiety. They pretend that they can know what other people are thinking or they project thoughts onto others and, and generally negative thoughts. <laughs> sure. Right. And then they predict that things will go up, go badly. And that creates uh, emotion. Yeah. You know, and I appreciate you sharing your, your feelings of, of shyness. I have, you know, I have some reoccurring thoughts around that too. I think mine show up a little bit as imposter syndrome sometimes, you know, where you, again, I would imagine that's, some fortune telling or, you know, Hey, I, I don't know enough to be a podcast star or I'm not even a star, just a podcast host. And I've noticed those come up as well. Although, you know, I guess one of the things that I've learned through that is to recognize those, recognize that they come from a place that was inherently positive, which is to, to keep me safe, but to recognize that and then just to go ahead and move forward anyway. I'm kind of curious what, what your thoughts are on, on just, you know, working with those types of thoughts. Yeah, maybe I could. First, I, I got a little distracted there because I, I just wanted to write down the thought that, that affects you. So the thought is, I'm an imposter. And yeah, I, I could see a couple distortions in that thought. Uh, for example, you might be discounting the positive, meaning focusing exclusively on, on the things, your deficiencies or things you don't know, but not taking into account what you, what you actually do know and what you are bringing to the table that's unique and wonderful. And, and you might also have some kind of should statement when you, when you use the word enough, like I don't know enough, right? I, sh I think that's a should statement in disguise. Yeah. Shoulds are tricky. They like to hang out in questions, like why does this always happen to me? That's a should statement, right? This shouldn't be happening to me. Or why didn't I know that? Could be hiding the, the should, uh, I should know that. And Albert Ellis was actually a predecessor of the whole CBT model. He had his REBT model and he was strongly of the opinion that these shoulds these demands that we we or the world or others be at all different than they are is the cause of our suffering do you have any sense of i mean is it important to know the origin of those thoughts you know i, I think a lot of people maybe have misconceptions around what it means to go into therapy i mean there are lots of different types of therapy but you know I, I, a lot of times people are like oh i don't want to have to go sort through all the garbage of my past and you know learn about my mother and father and all of those things. Is it important to to really know the origin of those thoughts? Or can you use these CBT tools just to work with the thoughts without having to, you know, unpack all of their origins? Yeah, interestingly, any, again, because we feel the way we think, any feeling that we're having right now that could be upsetting to us 
is easily accessible right now in terms of the, the current thoughts you're having. And so you don't need to go in, into the past or anywhere in, uh, other than right here, right now, uh, to understand the cause of your negative feelings. Which is powerful, right? I mean, I, you know, I've gone on a personal quest over the last couple of years and, you know, kind of a spiritual journey. And I've definitely gone into some of the depths of things in the past. And, you know, it's, I think that there's been some value in that. But one of the things that I've always appreciated about CBT is the ability to deal with, you know, it's a, it's a powerful tool for in the moment. And, you know, that's one of the things I've really, really appreciated about it. And it's a, a technique and a tool set that, you know, obviously best best experiences with professionals, but you can do it with yourself. I mean, working through some of the, the exercises and feeling great, you know, it, it's pretty approachable. I mean, that's one of the things that I, that I really like about it. Yeah, I really admire David Burns for writing a book that I think will help probably millions and millions of people. And it is so accessible. You can read it, you can do the exercises in the book, and you'll notice changes in how you're feeling right away. That can be quite powerful. Yeah, how are we doing? I, I think there was a question about the different distortions and how they impact us. Yeah, so let's go to the couple of different distortions. Talk to us about, the, are there 10 total, or is there more than 10? Or does 10 pretty much cover it? Uh, there are probably more more than 10. There, there are 10 on the list I'm, I'm most familiar with. And maybe the granddaddy of them all is the, uh, the all or nothing thinking. When our negative thoughts arrive in our mind, in our consciousness, they almost always have some form of all-or-nothing thinking. In other words, even your, your thought, I'm an imposter, has some kind of all-or-nothing thinking in it. Do you, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a pretty definitive statement, right? To say that I'm an imposter, that would imply that I, hadn't, that I didn't have any value or I was totally faking it or something like that. Yeah, you could, you could think of, are you an imposter all of the time? Yeah. Uh, or to the maximum extent. Yeah, I could see that how that would be all or nothing thing. I don't feel that way, thankfully. You know, it yeah. definitely comes up in you know in certain circumstances, but less so. But it's yeah, I could see how that could be an all or nothing statement. Yeah, and it, my thought, uh, pe- people will like judge me or look down on me. That's a common thought that I have. I'm probably thinking all people, all people think alike. They would have the exact same emotional response as each other, and it would always be negative, no matter what I did. So the the all or nothing thinking is. A helpful as a first distortion to look at and see if you can find something there. And there are many others. I, self-blame might might be part of your thought, like like I'm I'm an imposter and it's all my fault. Like, do you blame yourself for that at some level? You know, that's a good question. I don't know that. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to really think about if I'm if I blame myself for that. I, I'm not really sure the origins of that. I, I guess I don't really feel that way, to be honest with you. Okay, that's good. Yeah, some people will say, "Oh, this is all my fault," like, and it'll they'll feel quite guilty or remorseful, and they won't take into account all of the other influences that caused a certain outcome or set of outcomes. Yeah. And our, our mutual, uh, <laughs> I think we both look up to Sam Harris. Oh yeah, as, I'm, a, I'm definitely a Sam Harris fanboy. Every day I've been meditating with Sam's uh, app since the day it came out. And not, I, may, I, may, I might have missed a couple days in the, whatever, the two years or three years since it's been out. i big fan. Yeah, he has a lot of, a lot of wisdom. And one thing I like uh, is his version of reattribution, which clarifies that we don't have free will. And so things like self-blame, that helps dissolve self-blame and inform us as to why it's an illusion. 
Yeah, you know, I, I guess I've gotten to this place where I largely recognize that I'm not creating my own thoughts. Like I'm not, you know, a, the conscious actor and they're just appearing. And so that makes it easier for me to not believe them. I mean, I definitely get hooked on occasions. You know, I'm curious where they come from. And so, you know, I, I've been approaching most of my thinking with curiosity these days, which just seems like a, it, it's a much easier way to, to, to handle things. But I guess this brings me back to a question of, you know, if you have reoccurrent thoughts about being judged and I have maybe some reoccurring thoughts about being imposter, like I feel like I can handle those in the moment, but is there is there a way to, or do you see therapeutic way of getting, or are those thoughts ever going away or will they just kind of fade over time or they'll have less resonance with you? Kind of what, what does it look like when you're you're really winning with these thoughts? Yeah, yeah. So I think really winning against those thoughts is something that can be experienced as a result of a certain set of exercises that are specific for the individual. What would work for me and be effective for me might not be effective for someone else and vice versa. And the experience, though, is one where our belief in the thought goes away. It's challenged in such a way that it's, we experience complete relief from that negative emotional state. And it, you, could, you could say it's like enlightenment, that, that you feel lighter because you no longer are worried or nervous or feeling ashamed, but instead you have a new set of thoughts that are dictating a new set of feelings for you, like joy and feeling calm and at, at rest and, and at peace. And methods that were effective for me were to do some form of exposure, uh, social exposure exercises. I, I did a lot of shame attacking exercises. I did a lot of feared fantasy techniques, um, self-disclosure, uh, smile and say hello practice, rejection collection, just going out in public and proving that it's okay to be ridiculous because most people are more concerned about uh, themselves than, than what, what you're doing. Well, I have definitely been with you in situations when you were acting ridiculous. And Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really happy to participate in your healing or your enlightenment. So it's great. Most of the time, I don't even realize that I'm doing shame attacking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. The, uh, <laughs> you know, when I was looking at uh, feeling great, it, I think in the, in the back, it gave an index of almost, I think there was like almost 35 different practices. And it was really fascinating to me. And I, I guess just to kind of double down on what you were talking about, you know, there are a lot of, it's not a kind of a one size fits all solution to these, you know, to, to attacking negative thoughts. And one of the things that I kind of remarked upon, I wish I had it in front of me, was there was one, there was a couple of techniques that seemed to be more effective across a broader range of negative thoughts than others. And one of them had to do with more kind of philosophical, spiritual, does that one ring a bell to you? It may have been the acceptance paradox yeah, or externalization of voices. I, yeah, I think I, uh, among the the methods that are most helpful to people, I would say acceptance paradox is probably the most powerful. Yeah. So, what's can you explain the acceptance paradox in more detail? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea, well, we could maybe compare. There, there might be like two ways of talking back. There, there are more than that, but main, mainly there are two ways of talking back to a negative thought, and one is through self defense, and that's. We need, we need some of that if the thoughts are quite distorted in a negative direction. Like if I'm telling myself I'm worthless, I might want to defend myself a little and say, actually, even if I tried really hard to be perfectly worthless, I would fail and uh, do something that was at least a little bit worthwhile. 
And then acceptance paradox, though, is, is almost coming at it from the other side. It's saying the greatest step forward we could possibly make out, out of depression uh, would be to accept ourselves exactly the way we are right now. And that's why it's a paradox, is that by simply accepting this reality, this version of us in this moment right now, we step out of depression. And that's a huge shift. Yeah. No, no, it, 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 I read something this morning that really, it was along this lines. It was something like really loving yourself is loving when you're not loving yourself or yes, s- yeah. something to that effect. And it sounds very similar to this. Yeah. I had a student who was saying, I'm working hard on overcoming and defeating my worthlessness. And I said, I'm working hard to feel proud of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, it's powerful. One of the things that, you know, was really remarkable about CBT for me was, you know, people that have suffered with depression or anxiety for long, long periods of time that, you know, whether they were treatment resistant or, or whatever, can be really helped very quickly. It doesn't require years and years in therapy. I mean, this work can be done in literally the matter of hours. Yeah, I got to a point when I was uh, working closely with David at Stanford, we, we had these large groups and I still run training groups and so does he. But we would be scratching our heads in disappointment if the person didn't experience a radical shift in their feelings from feeling quite upset at the beginning of our time together, which was about two hours and required some you know, kind of chat to get started. And the end point where they were feeling usually complete relief from anxiety and depression, anger, upset feelings about a relationship would, would be 100% better. Wow. Yeah, this is both a really positive thing for you know the patients and people that are suffering, and then one of the things that really I've always thought about this just is it kind of hurts my heart is that, I mean this this is available like people this is out there yet it's not widely available like I I kind of have this I've always had this mantra in my mind honestly Matt that um, if anybody could sit down with you they could be healed or cured of whatever's ailing them but you're just not scalable like you, you can't scale map made of the world <laughs> i've got a, got a cloning project going on in my garage right now doug i'm glad to share with you but <laughs> yeah yeah we're working on that i've really enjoyed uh the uh, feeling good institute's community uh this training therapist in the team model we're trying to spread that we've got people now in most states most of, of the united states and in multiple countries around the world so we're we're trying to get trying to get the word the good word out there. Yeah. And yeah, I wish that process were a little further along too. Well, you know, you you're up against a couple of different challenges too. I mean, a lot of people have internal resistance. I think there's a, I was talking with our mayor a couple couple weeks ago about this and just the stigma associated with mental health. I mean, people will, you know, happily suffer maybe not happily, but they will not seek out treatment because of the stigma associated with that and they continue to suffer even though there are really great modalities out there and in a lot of cases don't require pharmaceuticals. So I guess there's two things. I'm really curious on your thoughts on, you know, pharmaceutical intervention with, you know, the SSRIs and those types of things, but then also the stigma associated with mental health. Right. Yeah. Boy, that you said it there. I think I I feel the same towards folks who are struggling with shame around their emotional state and, and thinking that it's just too shameful to even ask for help. I just can't imagine how lonely and hopeless they must feel. And if they're listening right now, I would would urge them to reach out because I honestly don't know anyone who doesn't experience these negative feelings. And 
I would say that each of these feelings that they have are signs of just how wonderful they are as humans. And, and that, that may be the most exciting uh, message that, that David Burns is offering in his, his new book, Feeling Great, is, is that even if you just take the feeling of shame and you ask yourself, well, what is good about that? What, is, what does shame say that's good about a human being? You can find countless things that it's saying that's good about them. You can, you can see that they have some sense of what others expect of them and that they desperately want to meet those expectations. That they care deeply about their community and their place in their community. And they don't want to step out of line. They don't want to bring embarrass anybody else. They'd rather suffer. And, and, and I see a beauty in that, a willingness to sacrifice. Yeah, no, I do and, too. And that's true for each of our negative feelings. Yeah, and I was, I'm glad you picked shame because shame was one that I was wondering if there was a positive aspect to the shame. You know, shame seems like one of the, the, the more troubling emotions. And, you know, to, to be able to frame that and find that there's positivity behind that is really encouraging. Yeah, I think all of our emotions have these, you know, positive qualities. The story I heard about shame that was interesting was a, an animal model of these dogs in Africa that somehow had this behavior where they would wander away from the pack in order to scratch their fleas. And you wonder, well, why, why would they do that? Well, clearly that would be good for the pack, right? That would promote their genetics and be, be reinforced behaviorally over evolution. And then, and then maybe that's what we're doing too. We're, we're distancing ourselves so we don't infect others. And I think we can imagine that our own emotions some people will say oh i'm i'm feeling so toxic today yeah and, and oftentimes it's we're feeling anger that's not getting expressed and we're thinking i shouldn't feel that way and i've got to hide that feeling away and not express it and and that's the source of a a lot of suffering i think ocd obsessive compulsive disorder is often based in uh, there's some some hidden feeling this is the david's hidden emotion model that we think we shouldn't have or some conversation that we're avoiding and, and that can result in tremendous shame. Wow. Gosh, I mean, it, it, you, you've seen so many different ways this plays out. I mean, I, you know, I always considered you as like a seventh level wizard of the mind, just because your ability to like look at a situation and, you know, and very quickly get to the root of what's going on and then help people. I obviously you've seen a lot of people and you've helped a lot of people, I, I guess, one question I I have is, you know, kind of shifting a little bit towards, you know, more of the entrepreneurs. I mean, you work with, you're based in the Bay Area. You work with a lot of executives and entrepreneurs. Do you find that there are common challenges or mental challenges for entrepreneurs and executives that are unique to them? Or is it pretty much similar across population? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I, I mean, I you know, entrepreneurs obviously are, are people too. And so they will, I think they'll have all the, the problems any, any group of people would have. And I, I think they're probably prone to their own particular types of, uh, maybe more, more frequently they would suffer from maybe anxiety or worry about the de decisions they're making, the future. You know, they're, they're taking a career path, which is, you know, the kind of more risky. Yeah, particularly uncertain, right? I mean, you're definitely facing uncertainty headlong or head-on. Exactly, yeah. And then I, I think th there's often a, a pattern that we can talk about where we will attach 
some part of our self-esteem or worth to something we're doing or some feature we have could be you know success uh, could yeah. be wealth or popularity or, or appearance etc but when oh, we're yeah. doing doing that we're depriving ourselves of a stable men- mental health no I, look i face this firsthand you know when we i had the medical device company priya when that didn't generate the financial returns that i had hoped it would i immediately took that on as a failure internally and i didn't realize i carried that badge or that you know that moniker of failure for for a long time i mean only until a couple of years ago did i really reframe that and what i you know the way i reframed it was sure i didn't get the wealth that i thought i would or the success but i got something that was really at the end of the day much more valuable which is i got this really powerful lesson i got this i developed a deep sense of humility i really got to experience what it's like to be an entrepreneur and now in the work that i do which is much more aligned with who i am which is helping serve other entrepreneurs and serve our community it's invaluable because when i sit down with somebody and they're you know they got 3 weeks of of cash in the bank or you know they're dealing with some issue like i know what it's like to be there and i can sit there and hold that with people and help them and so to me like it was it, now upon hindsight it was a very powerful lesson but for a long time i carried that as this failure and used that as a way to keep me small or or kept me from preventing to kind of lean into my own power so i can see especially because entrepreneurship is just fraught with risk Right? Even if you get it all right, the market can move against you. I mean, who would have thought that, you know, I, I have plenty of friends that have very successful restaurants that had it all dialed and then global pandemic and they're getting crushed. I mean, you, you, there's nothing they could have done. And yet I know a lot of those folks are suffering as a result of that. And even you know, so I think that goes hand in hand with entrepreneurship. Yeah, I like having those thoughts out in the open. So you were telling yourself I failed or or I, I'm a failure? Is that what you were saying to yourself? I would go, the way I noticed it is I was going around talking about my failed company. You know, oh, so I would okay. explain it in the world as a failure. And then you know, it was pre- it was positioned to me as, no, no, that wasn't a failure. You just got it. You didn't get what you thought you wanted, but you got something else. And that really changed my mindset around failure. Like I really don't believe now there's failure. I think there is you set out on an outcome to get some outcome. You may or may not get that, but you get something else. And, you know, that's a lesson. And so I think I was definitely conflating that failure also with, you know, my own inability. So like, how would I turn that into, you know, I wasn't a good enough leader or I wasn't a, you know, qualified enough, you know, all of those things sort of played out where I, where I noticed it was when trying to start something new, what you said before about kind of behavior where you're kind of, you're pushing up against something that feels uncomfortable. Oh, no, no, I'm going to stay safe in this thing now. Because, oh boy, last time I did that, you know, that, that I got burned really badly. So that's where I noticed it. It would come up and then you would, you these things like, who, who are you to think that you could go do this after you raised all this money and returned only part of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've had, had many thoughts like that, including I've had thoughts like I am a failure or I shouldn't have failed or, or that kind of thing. I, I I like the reframe that you did, which is that, well, I certainly learned something from an unexpected outcome. And I think that's what a failure means, right? It's just we expected something to happen that didn't. Absolutely. And I think, I guess the question, you know, the other the other 
really powerful metaphor I use is the second arrow, right? So the idea of the first arrow is the company was not successful. And that's true. Like that hurt. That was bad. I mean, we put a lot of time, blood, energy, you know, I, we took on a lot of responsibility, That, but it didn't work. And the first arrow was that it didn't work. The second arrow was I'm a failure. I've, you know, all of these negative things. And that's the one that you hold in your own hand and you start to stab yourself with. What I've realized is, you know, the second arrow is not valuable <laughs> at all. Like, you know, you can just drop the second arrow, like not useful. It hurts enough. Getting shot with an arrow hurts bad enough as it is for, you know. Yeah, you know. It, exactly. And I think this could be a good opportunity to bring up a couple of features of so why are we talking about uh, why am I talking about team therapy rather than CBT? And so there's a little history lesson here. So CBT was really powerfully effective and shown shown to be more more effective than other therapies available at the time uh, for treating anxiety and depression in you know in clinical studies. But it wasn't a hundred percent effective. There was still a large uh, portion of individuals who wouldn't benefit at all uh, from traditional CBT. We could have this conversation with them and we could practice cognitive exercises or behavioral exercises with them and it would not have an impact. And David set out to figure out why and to see what he could do to correct it. And one of, one of the first things he discovered is that even if people have an intellectual understanding that a, that a thought is incorrect, you can point out like, uh, I failed is like all or nothing thinking again, right? Right? And, or, and probably distorted in many other ways, self-blame, uh, should should statements, etc. But even if you know that the thought couldn't possibly be true, it could still have a really painful effect. It could still be believable at a gut level. And he he noticed that, for example, that people had these strong reasons to maintain that thinking, and to that it was almost like you could imagine that. Like they were they were paying someone with their suffering to follow them around and tell them you failed, you failed, you failed, and why would they do that? Right, there must be some reason to do such a painful thing to oneself. And but and and we could maybe list many here. Like, is it possible that they thought it would motivate them? Did they feel they deserved it? Did they want to learn a lesson? Did they want to protect themselves from that happening again? And, and we could list more of these uh, seeming advantages of our negative thoughts that hold them in place and lock them in our mind. And what David realized is that until we bring that resistance to the surface and honor it and see what it's trying to do, it's trying to protect us, right? It's trying to yeah. motivate us. Those are all good things. It's, it's just a, a positive quality taken to an extreme. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if this is similar to this, you know, that we use this in coaching, you know, the idea that you know, we learned a behavior when we were younger and it was it was the best we could do at the time, right? So, you know, you learned some behavior when you were younger and it's you're still using that same behavior as an adult, even though it's outdated. Like you solve that problem, but you remember that, hey, this was a solution to that problem and I'm just going to be applied here, but it's the wrong solution. And so you're kind of stuck playing over and over again. So it comes from a very positive place, right? You did the best you could when you were younger made a decision but now it's just out of date is that is that similar yeah i i especially see that in our interpersonal work so when we're working on relationships people spent years and years studying who to be in their family in this context of their usually mom and dad but whoever they were with growing up they, they learned who to be like what worked in that dynamic 
and depending on who their parents were, the wildly different approaches would be quite appropriate and and, and maybe the only way uh, to, to make ends meet there. And then they move on to a radically different environment, and they maintain the uh, expectation that the rules are the same, and that the people are thinking about them the same, and will respond to them in the same way. But that's not true, that they're encountering very different humans and need to be very flexible in terms of uh, how, how they approach those relationships. Yeah, fascinating. You know, you, as you were talking, it got me thinking, and, I, and I, I'm sure this is going to be considered a gross generalization, but, you know, one of the things that I have noticed over the many years working with entrepreneurs is that it does seem like the vast majority of entrepreneurs have had some particularly challenging life event happen in their youth. And, and I, again, I don't have a good cross-section of the entire population, but in EO, uh, Entrepreneurs Organization, we do this exercise called highs and lows or lifeline, and you kind of get to plot out you know, the highs and lows of your life. And invariably, like 90% of the entrepreneurs I've ever seen do this have some radical thing in their life. I mean, you know, in my family, my, my dad was married six times. That's pretty far outside of the norm. He didn't understand the concept of dating. He just seemed to get married, but neither here nor there. Love you, dad. But, you know, I've seen this across many entrepreneurs. And I, I guess one of the things that I'm wondering is there's something about that, that challenging life experience that drives people to be entrepreneurial because it is kind of a unique thing, right? I mean, not a lot of people decide to just create something from nothing and go face the odds of entrepreneurship. And so I wonder if there was something in that early development or in their life that really or maybe that's young entrepreneurs. I don't really know. I'm just kind of curious. I mean, now we're just pontificating, but I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I could make up a story there. I don't I don't know for <laughs> sure. It could be that you know, just having gone through something like that and survived, they realized that upheaval isn't all bad. We can we can go through these radical changes in our life and survive. And maybe that's kind of exciting. Maybe I want more of that. But but that's just a theory and. Almost all my theories are wrong. That's okay. Mine too. I, it just, it's one of those things I've noticed over the years that, you know, I guess my, the story I tell myself about that is that, you know, that at some point it broke the normative mold and they realized, wait a second, I can go out and the world is now, you know, that the normative broke. So let me just go create something again, total, total story. Maybe there's people that have done research on this that are wiser than us, but it just, it's just one of those things I've noticed that there's always something there that has has um, that kind of showed up in, in entrepreneurs' lives. I like that a lot. That idea a lot. I, how did that affect you? How did you? You said you your father was sounds like he never met a woman he didn't marry, and uh, <laughs> that you, you that you love him, but that was disruptive for you, and that make you into a bit of a rebel and uh, wanting to live outside the lines of normal whatever. Uh, yeah, I think so, and you know. I, very popular amongst the entrepreneurial community is a, a, a product called Strength Finders, where we kind of look at your top five strengths. And my number one strength, I haven't tested it recently, but was adaptability. And again, you know, this is a story, but the story I tell myself is, well, obviously I'm adaptable because I had to be shifted around and live in so many different households. <laughs> like, so that's like, yeah. and that turns out to be a really great strength for being an entrepreneur because you have to pivot a lot. You have to deal with unique situations. Like I'm not, you know, I mean, there's a shadow side to that or which is consistency. And that's one of my, you know, more, it's a different challenge for me, but the adaptability, I mean, I'm very comfortable in very broad situations. So again, 
you know, this is the story I tell myself. I'm not sure it's true, but. And that's, that's good. It sounds like good early life training for an excellent uh, career as an entrepreneur. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I, I think uh, one of the limitations uh, that we come up against in this field is that a lot of the experiments that we'd like to do to understand what leads to a certain type of person uh, would be highly unethical to do. But I, I love hearing just people's stories, where they're coming from, and oftentimes they can make sense of it uh, better than science. Yeah. Again, you know, I, I just have this resonance for entrepreneurs because I, I really, it's almost like a David and Goliath. You know, I, I appreciate big corporation. Like I understand how they work in the world sometimes, but I just have this sense like, and again, it's just from being an entrepreneur, like what it takes to, to fight against, you know, to create something from nothing. And it, it's just, I just have this resonance for people. And so one of my deep passions is helping entrepreneurs be, create what they want in the world. That, but the part that hurts my heart is I see a lot of that and it, and I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs that that do that, but then ultimately sort of fail by succeeding, right? Like they create success in one part of their life, but then this other part of their life is a, is a bit of a train wreck. And so one of the things that's really important to me is sort of like holistic, successful entrepreneurs. You know, it's one thing to have money that only solves money problems, but to really have kind of this holistic approach, because entrepreneurship is just amazing. It creates a lot of opportunity, but I've seen a lot of people that kind of have a bit of a train wreck on the other side. And just, it just, it breaks my heart to see that happen. Yeah, mine too. I, and uh, I think it underscores how we need balance in our in our lives uh, to be content. The uh, in Western medicine, there's the biopsychosocial model uh, that, that is used to understand our emotional state. That there's some biological component, and so it's important to stay healthy and see your doctor and exercise and get enough sleep and eat well. And then it's also important to have a good social life have good relationships with other people and then it's also important what's going on in in your mind and, yep. and, and it's hard hard to balance all those it is hard to balance all those things and it's it's yeah i think that's a that's part of the practice of living it is trying to find those keep those things all in balance or you know honoring all the different things when they you know when they come up i mean one of the i'm thinking in terms of acronyms today but one of the other popular acronyms that kind of gets thrown around and at least in our forum group is the idea of getting your meds in order. So meds in this case stands for meditation, exercise, diet, and sleep. And, you know, when those things are in order, it's a great foundation for, uh, for your you know, life operating system. But that does beg a question. And we, we touched on this a little bit before, you know, what is the role of medications like SSRIs? It does seem like, at least from my vantage point, they are overprescribed. And, you know, I understand people's desire to, um, you know, to take, to find quick fixes and I'm sure that they provide real relief to people. So I don't want to minimize their impact, but it does seem to me that, that that's, that they're being overprescribed. So I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the role of SSRIs? Yeah, I, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, the first is I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone to take anything that I'm saying today as medical advice or something that they should uh, change and or, or even address with their with their physician if if you're doing well on on your current SSRI let's say that's that's totally fine and and I guess one, one way of maybe this would be a data point I could offer is that I don't I haven't prescribed an SSRI in years and um, it's not that I don't have a license I, I, I could 
uh, prescribe SSRIs. I could do that and probably earn more money than I currently am. Which is a whole other challenge in and of itself. We, we don't have to talk about the economics yeah, yeah. and social issues around that yet. But Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, the, the data on SSRIs, I think, is if we were to look at it very realistically, I, I think we would probably take away the name antidepressant. I think that's quite an exaggeration. You know, I think we're we're used to thinking of an anti-something in medicine as clearly there's evidence that it's better than placebo. And in the case of anxiety and depression, uh, if there was ever a medication, if there was ever a process that would respond well to placebo, it would be these. Because imagine if you're feeling very hopeless. It's, yeah. it's, depression isn't depression without hopelessness. And if you tell someone, um, I have a pill that will make you feel better, I think that shifts the balance in terms of your hope and optimism. Or if they're anxious and they're just offered some reassurance, you'll, you'll be fine now. You'll feel, you'll feel better. You, you took an SSRI, you'll be fine. That, and they, they see that in clinical trials. There are very high placebo response rates in treatment of anxiety and depression, meaning if you just give a sugar pill and and tell them you'll feel better, they actually do, and sometimes up to seventy to eighty percent of people. And it's not just that they think that they feel better, but you can actually look at their brains and see that their their brain is acting differently. And, and the problem has been doing science that differentiates between placebo effect and an actual antidepressant effect, and I think that's questionable. Yeah. Which is, you know, again, the placebo effect is very powerful, and that's in and of itself if you're finding some relief. Again, that what begs the question for me about that is that kind of linking back to some of the foundations of CBT, right? As soon as I, I now think something differently, it's affecting my mood. So that is similar to the placebo effect, right? I mean, now that I, I've taken this thing, I've ingested some hope, and it's sort of changed my thoughts around that. Like, oh, I'm going to take this thing, and now I'm going to feel better, and thus you do. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not an expert on the placebo effect, but there's definitely something there. And, and usually it's around 30% of people, even for things that you wouldn't normally consider could be possibly affected by a placebo or just taking a sugar pill, actually do improve. And yeah, I've, I've sometimes wondered if maybe the uh, the science just got off on, on the wrong foot when it, when it came to the serotonin model. If you look at the history there, the people who first received a medication that they thought uh, was an antidepressant were in treatment for tuberculosis. They'd been separated from their family at a time in history where there were no medications to treat tuberculosis. You, people would just be sent to Arizona or some arid uh, environment where they might live a little longer. But of course, they became quite depressed <laughs> because they had this reality of, I'll never see my family again. I'm going to die alone. There's nothing that could be done for me. And then along came these uh, drugs for tuberculosis that also, by the way, were monoamine oxidase inhibitors, that they would increase the amount of serotonin in, in the blood, sometimes at, to dangerous levels. And they noticed all the people in, in the sanatoriums with tuberculosis suddenly felt a lot better when they were being given these medications. And they didn't take into consideration, maybe it was just because now they had hope that they could survive and see their family again, return to their lives. But the scientists thought, oh, it must be the serotonin. That's, and I, there's just not great evidence for that model. The power of hope, though. I mean, that's, you know, that's what I heard is the power of hope. And, that, and 
you know, the power of, of your mind to help change your mood and just, you know, having hope. So, I mean, I know that there's a lot of people that have been going through the pandemic that probably feel hopeless. I mean, what are you seeing right now as a result of the pandemic? I mean, are there common themes you're seeing? Yeah, I would say mostly anxiety, worry. I mean, a lot of people are feeling just a deep awareness of the tragedy that, that we're experiencing, you know, sadness and loss, but a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. There's so much uncertainty and so much change. And I think a lot of people just feel quite deprived of the aspects of life that they really enjoyed the most and frustrated not knowing when this will change or how much it will change. Yeah, and hopelessness is one of those emotions that maybe deserves a special chapter. Again, I think it's probably the worst uh, feeling to experience, uh, deep hopelessness. And I, I guess, again, we could ask ourselves the question, well, so why do we feel that? And I think a lot of it is protective. Like, we don't want to get our hopes up only to be disappointed. And I think during the pandemic, we got our hopes up many times. We were thinking, oh, maybe it's, oh, no, oh, no. You know, oh, oh maybe we can go do this thing. We can go, on. no, that got canceled, right? And, and so a lot of, we were almost trained <laughs> to be hopeless because why get our, why invest time and effort and energy planning something only to have it taken away, and it's it's better just to feel hopeless. Yeah, and I I remember the early days of the pandemic where you know they were locking down and then easing up and locking down, and you know it, after a couple cycles of that, you just started to feel pretty hopeless. Um, you know, fortunately, we you know where I live, we've been in an area that, and you know in a, in our family, we've been fortunate to be have good access to the outdoors. They kept elementary schools open, which you know I'm at the tail end of a of a quarantine. So my kids have only been home for about, a you know, 10 days. And that's been enough to drive pretty much everybody insane. So I just have a deep, deep appreciation for the families and other communities whose kids have been home for a year. I was talking to my brother, Jason, and his kids are just going back to school in California now. And, you know, I can only imagine what it looks like for a year. I mean, you know, 10 days, it's just, we've given up our living room and they're they're making their way to our bedroom. I'm gonna have to create some defensive barriers to keep the kids out. But uh, <laughs> you know, they uh, I could only imagine what that must go like or be like for a year because right now it's kind of like this fun vacation doesn't seem like a big deal. But after a long time of not going to sports, all those things, what the, how that must affect kids and then of course the parents, all of those things is just just tragic. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of the suffering is yet to come as we even as we emerge and receive vaccines and achieve hopefully something close to herd immunity where we can resume our normal lives. My, my sense is that people will ling- will still continue to feel a bit unsafe doing things that they normally would like imagine yourself right now in a big concert and swarming with people. Yes. I, I actually have a beautiful image right now. I just, you know, the worst thing, of, well, one of the things that we had to give up last year was High Sierra Music Festival, which was one of my favorite things. We, it's a great opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't wait to go this year, I hope. But yeah, I guess, you know, having this new normative of like standing six feet away from people to be packed up close, rocking out is going to feel quite a bit different. Yeah. My guess is that people will experience a lot of anxiety and they might not totally understand that it's absolutely normal. And that would make it quite worse because then they might think, oh, now something really bad is happening. I'm having a heart attack or something like that. 
I need to leave. And that, that again, will train the mind that you only survived because you got out of there. And that, that can further solidify the, the anxiety and worry and avoidance behavior. Yeah. Well, so, you know, given that there's going to be so many people in this situation, I mean, are there, again, no medical advice here, but are there tips and tricks or best practices that you could suggest people think about as we're transitioning out of the pandemic? I mean, what's the, you know, like maybe that and just generally like what are Matt's like fine tune your mind hot tips we can all take on. <laughs> I, I wish I had something very uh, simple, but folks are so unique and, and that's just wonderful that they are, that I, I wouldn't have a one size fits all. But I, I do highly recommend uh, getting a copy of Feeling Great by Dr. Burns. I think there's a unique approach outlined there that can help many different people. Yeah, I can absolutely. I, I, and I think the things that you were saying there too, in terms of meditation and exercise and taking good care of yourself with your diet and sleep. Fantastic advice. Yeah. No, look, I can absolutely recommend Dr. Burns's book. It's a great book. I've actually handed it off to three or four people. And now we have a group of people that are, you know, talking about the magic dial and the magic button and, you know, stumbling around to try and help each other. Oh, that's great. It is definitely something that's totally approachable and totally doable. And um, yeah, so I, I think that's excellent advice. How might people find uh, a therapist with your background? So, uh, you know, unfortunately, you're in Silicon Valley, so that you don't make it that available for everybody to see. I guess you do maybe some online, but is there a place where people can go to find out more about, you know, team therapy? Yeah, the Feeling Good Institute has a nice set of resources, both for therapists who are interested in learning the model and also for patients who are interested in uh, receiving treatment. Last time I checked, they had a way of searching there by zip code, and there's more availability every day of therapists who are learning this model and more, more availability to people by, by phone call if they're wanting to continue to shelter in place. And, and so that's a fantastic resource. There are other practitioners who are in the community who are not associated with the Feeling Good Institute and, uh, but still practice team therapy and are excellent. I think one of the things to keep in keep in mind is just uh, reach, reaching out and taking that, that first step to get a little help uh, for yourself in and of itself can make a big difference in how uh, you feel uh, in terms of taking a little better care of yourself. Yeah, and, and I guess that's one of the, you know, not, I mean, I always love the opportunity to talk with you, Matt. I mean, it's just so meaningful. You, you have made such a positive impact in my life. I mean, I can't, you know, there was many times we've been on the road going camping where you have taken on my persona and helped me work through some issues. So I just cannot thank you enough for all of that. But, you know, if I can share my own experience and my own challenges navigating through my own mental health as an invitation for people to, to go seek that out for themselves or just to show, you know, like it's to not to destigmatize it. I think that's a huge win because I guess my general feeling on this is that well-adjusted people make for a much more well-adjusted world. And so if we can help people find contentment and create the life they love, then that's just going to make a better world for everybody. Oh, man, brother. I love the sound of that. Yeah. Was there any particular experience that stood out in, in our conversations? Oh, you know, I guess there was a time we were driving to, to what is sacred ground for me, which is Buckeye Hot Springs. And I think you were 
we were, I was feeling guilty about something and you were like, well, let me just be your guilt. And then I'm arguing with my guilt while we're driving down I-80. I think it was a pretty, <laughs> and I, you know, for, for years after that, I'm like, I think, I think Matt absolved me of all guilt. This is great. <laughs> That's good. Now, yeah, this may I, be a little premature, like, you know, but nevertheless, you, you, you helped me immensely in the, on that moment. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I struggled with guilt uh, quite a bit. And I know that well. I know that emotional terrain really well. I, I recall that conversation. I remember trying to persuade you that, you know, a good person would feel guilty and that, that you should feel that way. And I could, I just remember you kind of brushing, brushing me off your shoulder. And that, that was, that, that's what brought you relief to, to argue back against the reasons to keep guilt. That's the one that comes to mind. I feel like, you know, at that time, it, the practice feels a little, you know, it, it feels a little awkward. Like all of a sudden you're, you know, here's your friend and he's your guilt and we're talking in the car and like wanting, you know, expectations and all of that. But yeah, no, it, it definitely made a big difference. I'm glad to difference. hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Role, role plays are one of my favorite ways of doing therapy. There's something magical about hearing your own thoughts from the outside and having the opportunity to examine them, not while thinking them, but by hearing, uh, while hearing them from the outside. Yeah. You know, I'll just say this, Matt. Everybody needs a Matt May in their life as a friend, you know, and and it's great if you, you're you someone's doctor, but I just, I'm just so honored that you're my friend and that we've gone through so many different experiences and I look forward to continuing to navigate the world together. Thank you, Doug Irwin. I feel tremendous gratitude to you as my friend and, and uh, just so admire what you're doing here, reaching out to the community and sharing your voice. I can't think of anyone who I'd rather be a voice in the wilderness than you. Thanks, Matt. Well, un until we see each other again, we'll sign up for now. Sounds good. Okay. Okay.